privilege to be here again and the relief for me to be able to get the mask off. If Stephen had been here, I was going to say that with these things would look like the Lone Ranger and Tonto. But some folks here are probably too young to know who the Lone Ranger and Tonto are, but with the other brethren not being here, I'm even more like the Lone Ranger now, I think. Uh, we're going to read in Hebrews chapter 2, just to remind you, by the way, that the conference is on again on Monday, and our brother Douglas Mowat and Craig Monroe will be here. So please don't think you have to come back on Monday and get lots more of me. I'll not be here. I'll be far away. Some of these poor girls are going to be in the same place, but never mind. They'll have to put up with me again. But the rest of you will be able to come here on Monday and hear Douglas and Craig, and we heartily recommend that to you and hope that many of you will manage to come. Now let's turn to the, the passage that was on the card, so we'll just stick with that. We'll maybe add something to it and maybe keep your Bibles handy and we'll keep you away by turning to some other passages later on. But to start with, we'll read Hebrews chapter 2 from verse 5. For unto the angels hath he not put in subjection the world to come, whereof we speak. But one in a certain place testified, saying, What is man that thou art mindful of him, or the son of man that thou visitest him? Thou madest him a little lower, or for a little while lower than the angels. Thou crownest him with glory and honour. Thou didst set him over the works of thy hands. Thou hast put all things in subjection under his feet. For in that he put all in subjection unto him, he left nothing that is not put in put under him. But now we see not yet all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, should taste death for every man. For it became him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect or complete through sufferings. For both he that sanctifieth and they who are sanctified are all of one, for which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare thy name unto my brethren. In the midst of the church or the congregation will I sing praise unto thee. And again, I will put my trust in him, and again, behold, I am the children which God hath given me. For as much then as the children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not on him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things it behoved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make reconciliation or propitiation for the sins of the people, for in that he himself hath suffered being tempted, 
he is able to succor them that are tempted or tested. We trust that God may bless the reading of his word. Well, our subject is the incarnate son. And primarily this passage gives an explanation. God willing, as we continue on this, we'll say a little bit more about the Lord Jesus as a man. And we'll say something about uh, other features of that, the extent of his manhood. And we may say something about the example of his manhood. And something about the entrances of his manhood as found in this epistle as well. But primarily this passage deals with the explanation. Why did the Lord a man become? And the passage is continuing, remember, this theme in the first chapter we've seen of one who's greater than the angels. And we've seen uh, lots of ways in which he was greater than the angels, but in particular, he is the Son of God. They are sons of God in a different sense. And of course, they are ministers sent forth to serve. He is the one who is going to rule, and he's the one who brought worlds into being. And we saw this demonstration of his deity. So there is no doubt, in terms of his eternal subsistence, the Lord Jesus is at far greater than the angels. But now we're going to read in this passage that he was made a little lower, and maybe it's better translated, for a little time, lower than the angels. And that is because, as a man, he's going to come into a, a lower form of the creation than the angels. Now, why is that going to happen? And the things that the writer is wanting to really get across to us in this is to really, for us to understand that first of all, it was always the purpose of God that mankind would have a more exalted position than the angels. And we'll see that in verses 5 to 8. But then we see at the end of verse 8 this but, and I tried to emphasize these two buts, but something went wrong. Something has happened that the writer says, but... We see not yet all things put under mankind. But immediately the Holy Spirit comes in in verse 9 with another boss. And that is for the remainder of the chapter. And while we've been shown in the early part of the chapter, what it was that God revealed what he wanted man to be. That has become restricted at the end of verse 8, but is going to be completely and totally recovered by the person of the Lord Jesus. And you will see that from verse 9 to 18. And in those verses, we'll see a number of wondrous roles that the Lord Jesus fulfills for you and fulfills for me. And what he's done. So, it's just very quickly the opening few verses. I don't say, say much about them. Most of verses 5 to 8 is a quotation from Psalm 8. And it's one of those, and uh, it's one of the reasons I'm very, very fond of David. You know, there was a little debate going on in our family chat about systematic reading and, and following a, a systematic, you know, first of the year and first uh, of January and all. And let me say to you young folks in particular, uh, and I would, was not as young as you when I started to do it, I wish I had it. And you really go at it, and year in, year out, make sure you read the whole of the script. You'll be staggered after seven or eight years of it. How much more of it is stuff than you thought stuff at the time. And I know when you get to Isaiah and Jeremiah and Ezekiel and Maybe I'll be in trouble when I'm meeting them one day for saying this, but sometimes it slows you down a wee bit, doesn't it? And you find it a bit tough going. But you keep at it. 
But I have to confess now in my own readings, I'm a little bit more kind of, a little bit less systematic. And one of the reasons for that is I don't like any time of the year when I'm not reading the Psalms. So I actually, no matter what, I make sure I read from the Psalms every single day in life. Now that's probably because I'm getting old. And one of the reasons for that is I love David and I love the writings. But there's something about David that is so kind of appealing. I think in many ways it can be summed up in those words that God describes him. A man after God's own heart. And what he says regarding his, his nephews, he says, these sons of Zeruiah be too hard for me. And I think it just gives you the, the idea of somebody who is tender. Who tended the sheep, you see, was a shepherd. But we have a desperate need amongst God's people today for shepherds. There's plenty of people who want to be elders and want to be on oversight. But shepherding is costly. And there are very few people who want to pay the price of being a shepherd. The good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Maybe not in the sense that our Saviour laid down his life on the cross, but I tell you, a good shepherd of God's people will have to devote his life to the sheep. And we are in desperate need of that amongst God's people today. And David was that type of man. That's why God put him over his people. And one of the things about him, he was the kind of man who liked to contemplate. And he clearly was out, I would suggest, with the sheep on a starry night. And it's the kind of thing I like to do as well. And just look at those stars, and I, I know very little about them. I know how to find the plough and find the North Star and work out what's north and south after that. And I, I kind of know where the rise belt is and a few other bits and pieces. But, but there is just something majestic about it. And I think here's David on a starry night, and he's looking, and he, he's looking at the vastness of this universe. And even he, without all the knowledge that we have today, realised that we are just this tiny little speck. As somebody has said now, we're this insignificant little ball of rock in this insignificant little solar system, in this tiny little galaxy on the periphery of a colossal universe that is beyond our expectation. And all we are within that is little specks of dust. And David's almost looking at that and he says, What is man that thou art mindful of? Or the son of man that thou visitest him? Why, God, why do you have such an interest in man? And as he quotes it in these verses, it's a, it's a, you know, it's the way he quotes it, by the way. He doesn't tell us it's David. He says, one in a certain place. That's a very interesting expression, isn't it? You see, one of the things he's impressing upon these Jews, whoever the writer is, is his knowledge of the Scriptures. He's trying to prove to them from their Old Testament Scriptures that the Lord Jesus Christ is the Messiah. It's, it's a bit like, you know, those two on the road to Emmaus. The Lord took them, and from all the Scriptures, he showed them the things concerning himself. He showed them it. And I think that's what the writer to the Hebrews is trying to do here. And he says, one in a certain place, it's David in Psalm 8, uh, and he quotes it, it takes you right down to the beginning of, of verse 8, uh, and really it just sets it all apart, and it says, this, this is what you... And he says, here's the intention of man. Now remember we spoke earlier about this world and the next world. Well, here it is. Look at verse 5. Unto the angels he hath not put in subjection the world to come. But obviously. So make that very clear, you know, that there's a world that now is, and there's a world to come. In fact, Peter tells us in 2 Peter 3, there are the heavens and the earth which were created, the world that now is, and there are new heavens and a new earth. There is a world that now is, and there is a world that is to come. 
I think we're on the brink, by the way, of the world that is to come. Beginning of John's Gospel, it says this of the Lord Jesus. He was in the world, and the world was created by him, and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. To many as received him, to them gave he the power to become the children of God. I think that is a summary of God's dealings with mankind over six millennia. Two millennium, he dealt with the nations, the world, and they knew him not. Two millennium, he took up one nation, the Jews, and they received him not. And for two more millennium, he has taken up as many as received him, who then gave him the power to become the children of God, who were born not of flesh and blood like the Jews, but born again by the Spirit of God, the New Testament church. And God is an orderly God. He's a God of sevens. Have you ever thought about a week? It's the most ridiculous measure of time you could ever imagine, really, humanly speaking. I can tell you how a day comes about, and this all to do with how a month comes about, and how a year comes about. They're all to do with the planets and the sun and the moon and the stars. But where does a week come from? And it doesn't even fit into months, and it doesn't even fit into years. And we have to have a leap year every so often. And we have different lengths of months. And all, all because of a week. And yet the whole world revolves around a week. A program of seven days. God works that way. You see, that's how God created it. And it's stamped and impressed upon the whole of mankind. And for all the rebellion over all the centuries, that week still dominates the life of the whole of the planet. And for that nation of Israel, God had another week. He had a week of years. They didn't observe the year of rest. They didn't do it for a long time, nearly, nearly half a millennium. And he put them into captivity 70 years to give back the 70 years that they hadn't given a Sabbath of rest to. Well, I believe he's got a Sabbath of rest in millennia as well. And this world has had six millennium of man's misrule, and we're now standing on the brink of a Sabbath of rest. We're standing on a brink of all this mess being sorted out and there'll be no pandemics and there'll be no pollution and there'll be no holes in the ozone layer and there'll be no horrendous treatment of animals in some parts of the world and there'll be no mass abortion and the murder of millions of children and all of these awful things that mankind is inflicting upon themselves God is going to bring a millennium of rest and it's not going to be run by the angels. He's not put the world to come under angels. No, no, he says. He has done. Well, he says, what has he done? He says, I'll quote you one in a certain. I'll show you from the Old Testament scriptures. When man was made, he gave them dominion. And he was given that wonderful position of glory and honor. You see, when you look at Adam and you look at what happened, it's a remarkable thing. I don't want you to go away and just think of this and forget everything else you've heard today and have you be a little bit mind blown. But have you ever thought when that serpent spoke to Eve? I used to read it, and the first thing I used to say is, wait a minute, why doesn't she say, Adam, get over here quick, there's a serpent talking to me. Clearly it was a different world. Man had a dominion. And he was able to have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the earth and the fowls of the earth and the beasts of the field. And man was in this remarkable position and he was for the blessing of the rest of the creation. And he headed it off and God ordered it that way and he put him there. He was the pinnacle of God's creation. 
Many gave him a woman. Do you know who she is? She's the pinnacle of mankind. The woman is the glory of the man. I believe that means the best that's to be seen in humanity is to be seen in the woman. Now, it's not my subject tonight, but we could go through Scripture and trace that through. You want to see love? It's the love of a mother. You want to see virtue? There's a virtuous woman. You could go through Scripture. There's many more. You would just... Standing around this cross, what's there? Four women. Where are the men? They all forsook him. The best of mankind is seen in the woman. And so you've got this lovely picture. Here is man with dominion. Here is man in control. Here is man placed in this position by God. And uh, here it is. Well, for a little while he was lower than the angels. But God's intention was always that man would rule in the world to come. And the end of verse 8 says, But now we see not yet all things for the well, all sorts of things happened when Adam sinned. That triune being, the only other triune being being God himself, that triune being now experienced spiritual death. That was the first thing. Not only spiritual death, but the day thou eatest thereof, dying thou shalt die. In came physical death. Worse than that. Unless they had faith and repentance. In came eternal death. The second death. Hell and the lake of fire. As the New Testament describes it ultimately. The awfulness of death descended. And man, and you very quickly, even after the flood, you very quickly see man starts to poison the environment that he's in. And it's to the detriment of the, uh, the animal kingdom. And it's to the detriment of the uh, planet itself. And it's little wonder when I come to Romans chapter 8. It says this. The whole creation groaneth. You can almost feel it tonight under the burden of COVID. And by the way, this is a relatively minor, minor thing compared to the kind of things that could happen. The creation's groaning and it's waiting for the manifestation of the sons of God. And that's not angels that's in you. You read Romans. That's you and me. That's our Saviour coming back and us coming back with Him and the manifestation of the sons of God and the whole planet. You can hear it tonight. You can almost sit outside and listen and feel it. The creation groaning and it's waiting. But we don't see all things under Him now, do we? We see this chaos round about us. But I'm so glad that there's a second but in this, these verses and it's in verse 9 and that takes us into this wonderful passage which is going to present to us the, the wonder of the Lord Jesus in the incarnation we see Jesus who was made for a little while lower than the angels and here's the explanation in an instant for the suffering of death if I said to you today Tell me something that the Lord Jesus can do that the angels can't do. Well, you'd maybe cover some of the things we spoke of today. Omniscience and omnipotence and omnipresence. And the outshining of God. But I want to tell you, here's something else that they can't do. The Lord Jesus tells us himself. I'll just read you a couple of verses. They're found in Luke 20. You don't need to turn to them. This is what it says. And Jesus answered, said unto them, The children of this world. Notice that we've got a this world and another world here. The children of this world marry and are given in marriage, but they which shall be accounted worthy to obtain that world. There it is again. This world and that world. 
and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage neither can they die anymore for they are life unto the angels so I'll tell you here's something no angel could ever do no angel could ever die they don't die the way God created them they're incapable of death but here's a great problem. The only means by which a holy God can ever be satisfied is by the giving of a life. Without the shedding of blood, without the giving of a life, there is no remission of sins. And this whole book is saying, he's tried to teach you that by showing you over the centuries, thousands upon thousands upon thousands. You know, I once tried to sit down and work out how many sacrifices that nation offered up in a year. And it just got mind-blowing. When you started to look at some of the feasts and the multiplications, as well as the morning and the evening, then you started to look at ones for every family when you came to the pattern. I mean, it is just literally thousands upon thousands upon thousands. What is God trying to teach them? The wages of sin is death, number one. And number two, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Well, the angels can have all the power and authority that God decides to give them but they can't fix this problem because they can't die. They can't fix this problem because they can't die. And so now he says, look back at verse 9 again with us. Now this is, this, you see, the reason there's quite such an emphasis in this passage, this is, well, as Paul tells us, the cross is what? To the Jews, a stumbling block, an enormous stumbling block. It's not just to the Jews. I have a good Muslim friend, Akilan. He says to me one day, Alistair, what kind of a God allows himself to be taken by his creatures and crucified and humiliated? What kind of a God is that? You see, it's a stumbling block. I said, I'll tell you what kind of a God he is, Akil. He's not a God who asked me to sacrifice my children to him if he sacrificed his son for me. That's the difference. That's the God of the Bible. That's the God that we're dealing with. And no angel could have dealt with this problem. So what happened? God sent his son. We see Jesus, who was made for a little while lower than the angels, for the suffering of death. Very, very, very specific. The reason he came into this world, very specific, was to die. You don't really hear that at Christmas, do you, in many of the Christmas messages? <laughs> you think it's this wonderful child born to live, but that child was born to die. All our children are born to live, but unfortunately, inevitably they die. But this is one child who would never have died. He could have lived and lived and lived and lived forever. Death had no claim upon him. But he was born to die. For the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honour. Well, we're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but people get very excited about this little expression and say, well, when's this crowned with glory and honour? Now, I used to think that in the traditional view for a very long time that it's looking forward to a future day. We see Jesus crowned with glory and honour and very soon he's going to come and every knee will bow. Well, that is true. But I don't maybe think in the context that is it. And then I decided that it probably goes back to when he was here on earth. Because what we did see when he was here on earth is a man as man was intended to be. Don't ever think that the Lord Jesus is less of a man than you and I because he's incapable of sin. He's actually more of a man than you and I. 
Because you see, he has not been invaded by what we've been invaded by. He's man as God intended it to be. And while he was here on earth, we did see a man who had dominion over the fish of the sea. He could put a shoal of them into a net. He could put one of them onto a hook. And, he could, and I don't think he was doing that by divine power, by the way. I think he was doing that as a perfect man. He could take the colt, the foal of an ass that was unbroken, and he could ride on it, and there would be absolutely no problem. And to the bitter remorse of a beloved disciple, he could get one of the fowl of the earth to crow right at the moment he wanted, just after Peter had denied him for the third time. He had control, he was a perfect man. So I do think it's true that while here on earth we see Jesus crowned with glory and honour. We see man as man was intended to be. But I do think in the context of this passage, what have we been reading in chapter 1, verse 3? For example, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. What do we read in verse 13? Sit on my right hand until I make that enemies the footprint. Look, I believe right now we see Jesus crowned with glory and honour. Why? Because he has gone into death, and as we're about to see in these verses, he's not just gone into it, he's come out of it. Now, young man today, if you get the opportunity to preach the gospel, you never, ever, ever preach the gospel without the cross, and you never preach the cross without resurrection. The fundamental of the Christian gospel is, it's an empty tomb, he's not here, he is risen. Now look at what the writer says to us now. He's crowned with glory and honour. Why was he made a little lower than... See, he's already giving you a little inkling straight away. He's saying, he went down and he's gone up. Why did he come down? That he, by the grace of God, should taste death. That's a strange expression, isn't it? Taste death for everything. Now, I believe there's a very big difference. I know some don't. And if you see it differently, then... I was going to say I apologise, but I don't because I still see it this way. (laughs) I think there's a very big difference between the first three hours on the cross and the second three hours on the cross. And we, because of our finite minds, tend to focus on those first three hours because we can relate to the sufferings of the hands of men. But there are three hours that are shrouded in darkness. I would believe personally that it's in those three hours that more than anything else, he tasted death for every man. He knew the awfulness of separation from a holy God on account of sin. My God, my God, why hast thou abandoned me? My friend, I just say this in passing on a conference call. If you're outside of Christ and you're not saved, you will know the anguish of that for all eternity. You have to be saved. Or you will be forsaken for all eternity. Here says the Lord Jesus, here says the scripture, he tasted death for every man. In other words, this is the idea, I'm going to use the expression, I know people today in many places don't like it, sacrificial substitution. David Robertson, the former moderator of the Free Church now in Australia, I think, last I heard anyway, probably still there, I'd imagine, probably not allowed out in all of this, is he? So he's probably there forever now. But um, he had, he had to debate with another fellow cleric. And the fellow cleric wanted to debate the evil doctrine of the atonement, as he called it. <coughs> they will come under the judgment of God. Read, you know, I, I saw somebody uh, applied afterwards when 
David suggested that the dear man did not believe in the Saviour that he believed in. And people fired in all sorts of tweets or whatever they are, and uh, how judgmental, what a terrible thing to say. And one woman sent in one little message and it just said this. Have you ever read Matthew 23? I immediately turned to Matthew 23. Woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. Woe unto you. And who's the speaker? The Lord Jesus. Because they were blind leaders of the blind and they were leading them in the wrong direction. And there are many clerics today, sadly, and they're leading people straight to hell. It's a tragedy. And we swallow and fight and go up to all sorts of nonsense amongst ourselves, which is utterly ridiculous, when we should be looking for our brothers and sisters in places being led by men like that come out of my people and be receptive. You should find something appealing for them to come to. And our behaviour at times is just so appalling that they would never be attracted to it. That's an aside, but there we are. He tasted death. He went into the awfulness of it. Sacrificial substitution. God demands nothing less. And without it, there is no such thing as Christianity. It does not exist. That's it. It's finished. Paul teaches that in 1 Corinthians 15. No death and resurrection, nothing. A sacrificial substitute. Look, what does he say now? To make the captain of their salvation. I'm just going to give you these quick little headings. I've caught my alliteration here. You see, my wife would be proved right here. I thought I came up with four good ones, but the first one's not so good. That's the sacrificial substitute. Well, I've used the word, a concil- uh, uh, he's a conciliator. He's the one who at the same time can propitiate towards God. In other words, he can satisfy a holy God at the same time as being a substitute for men. Now, how does he do that? Because he's sinless and holy and pure and has a relationship with God and at the same time he's a real man and he can take our place. That's why he came into the incarnation. He was born to die. But now we see in the rest of the verses, he's not just this sacrificial substitute, if you like this, Conciliated in verse ten, he's a captain, and that word captain is an interesting, and it's quite interesting how it's worked out. By the way, in the ranks within our own army, you see, you will find generals are very rarely on a battlefield. Certainly in the First World War, the generals were all back at base, telling the poor boys in the trenches to get up and over, and they're all getting slaughtered. But a captain generally was a man who led a group, and he led them. He went first, and they followed. He can. It's the word for a pioneer, really, is another way of translating it. And verse 10 says, It became him for whom are all things, and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons unto glory, to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now the verse is to say, realize what he's doing here. He's going into death, and he's going in as the captain. And it may well be that most of you are going to have to follow. Naturally speaking, we're all going to die. No, that's been brought home to us in the sad circumstances of this week. Many have asked today about Alan. I, I spoke with Alan on Wednesday morning. And while he is devastated and in very difficult circumstances, he did say this, he wants you all to be assured that as a family they feel the absolute wave of love of God's people and the wave of prayer that's ascending on their behalf. And this week we've been reminded, a young man of 36, he went into death. But you know this, because his captain went into it before him, he came out of death. 
You see, his captain's already been there. His captain has been made perfect, has been made complete, is the idea. How, how would the Lord be able to sympathise with that family tonight? If he hadn't been through it himself. But he has. Oh, he's not only a captain. Look at verses 11, 12, and 13. Oh, I love this. He's a companion. He's a companion to you and I. It's quite remarkable. He says, you know, the, the reason he did this is that he might be like us. So that he that sanctifieth, that's the Lord Jesus, and they that are sanctified, that's us. Now, let's just stop on that. that, word, that that's the word for being set apart, for being holy. The Bible does not teach isolation, but believe me, you, it does teach separation. Now, it's not popular. People say, well, we'll make people feel uncomfortable if we're different. My dear young Christian, you are here to make them feel uncomfortable. You are the salt of the earth. And if the salt has lost its savour, what value is it? Salt makes you feel uncomfortable. It's an irritant. Why do Christians experience persecution? Because they make the ungodly feel uncomfortable. The Lord Jesus is the sanctifier, and he made them be seen. But why did they crucify him? No, the Lord Jesus says, if they hate me, they'll hate you. You know why they hate me? He says, I did the things that nobody else did, and I said the things that nobody else said. I always think of John 8 when I read those words. He did the things that nobody else could do. He got down and he wrote on the ground. I like to think of it as the finger of God writing the Ten Commandments. Did they realise who they were talking to? Come and question him about the Lord. The author of it. And then he said what nobody else could say. Whichever one of you is without sin, you throw the first stuff. One by one they all went out. But they hated him. It made them feel uncomfortable. So him that sanctifieth and those that are sanctifieth, they're all of one. For which cause he is not ashamed to call them brethren. And I had to look at this to see when he calls them brethren. I could only find two examples. It's interesting though which books they're in. I found it in Matthew's Gospel, last chapter. I thought, oh well, the second one will be in Mark then. No. Well, normally if things are only in it's Matthew and Mark often are in common. And occasionally Matthew and Luke are in common. But it's very rarely for something that is unique to Matthew and John. But this is Matthew 28 and John 20. It says to those women, Go tell my brethren. He never called them that once before the cross, you know. <laughs> never called them his brethren before the cross. His friends, in the upper room, he says, your servants, your also friends. But on the other side of the cross, he now calls them brethren. Why? Because he's been into death and he's been out of death. And he's experienced everything that we can experience apart from sin. Even death itself. He's our real companion. <laughs> he's even gone and done that for us. Now, I can't find any scripture, by the way, to justify us ever calling him brother. You know, two of his brothers in the flesh wrote books in our New Testament. And you'll, now, you'll find, we're going to spend in a moment, eight times in this book, the Lord Jesus is addressed simply as Jesus. But neither of his brothers ever did that. It's very interesting, isn't it? And I can't find one example of the disciples ever doing that either. So be very, very careful. That's why we pointed out that chapter 1 exalts him so high that we have no doubt about the majesty and the awesomeness of this person. 
Because the rest of the book is going to talk about intimacy. And here it is. He's our companion. He's even been into death for us. And he's come out. And, and you know, in verse 12 it says, here's the next thing. I will declare my name unto my... And he quotes Old Testament scriptures. You this, see, I know it says the church here, but it would be better the congregation if it hadn't taken good old Mr. Tyndall's translation and kind of the authorised now. I love the authorised, but be quite clear about it. A lot of the changes they made from Tyndall were not improvements. Tyndall had congregations, not churches. And to change it back was not an improvement. And he wasn't keen on bishops either. And that wasn't an improvement either. And this should be a congregation here. And he says, in the midst of... And he quoted Old Testament scripture to show that here was always the purpose of God, that there would be this one who would be made for a little while lower than the angels, he would go into the death as a captain, he would come out, he would conquer death, as we're going to see in a moment, that's the next one, he's our companion, and you see it down there, again in verse 13, I will put my trust in him, be told I and the children which God hath given me, that is why when we come to Romans 8, it's the manifestation of the sons of God, because he's bringing us with him, isn't it wonderful what the Lord has done for you, so don't get too upset when I tell you he's expecting a bit of separation. He's expecting you to be different. He wants you to be sanctified. You were saved to serve and you were saved to be holy. So he says, there we are. And this is what he's done so far now. And then we come to verse 14 and he says, here's another thing he is. He's not just a captain and he's not just a companion. He's a conqueror. For as much then as the children of partakers of flesh and blood, he likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil. That's a wondrous thing, isn't it? You know, when they saw him go, where did he go? They saw him pass up through the heavens. You know, the wicked one's called in the New Testament, he's called the prince of the power of the earth. Do you know where you and I are going to meet our Saviour? Right in Satan's domain. In the earth. We're going to be caught up together to meet him in the earth. And you know what? There's not a thing he can do about it. Why? The gates of hell shall not prevail against us, said the Lord Jesus of his church. And he went into death. And you see, the wicked one, what's he all about? He went there and what he was after was death. Spiritual death. The wages of sin is death. Physical death. And if you can keep hold of them all the way to the end, there'll be eternal death. And the Lord Jesus came and he went into death and he came out. Up from the grave he arose with a mighty triumph for his foes. He arose a victor from the dark domain. And he lives forever with his saints to reign. Him right has got it right, haven't they? They don't always get it right. <laughs> but in that case, he's certainly got it right, hasn't he? Mr. Wesley got it right and half the herald angels sing as well. Got it right. He's a conqueror. And not only has he done that, he's done that on our behalf, verse 15, to deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. Now look, it doesn't mean to say that we don't fear death. I, I, I know that it means, but what he's saying is this. Death is no longer the you know, even for the old testament saints, there was an unknown element to death. Get on later in this book and you'll see the difference. In chapter 11, when it speaks of those heroes of the faith, it says this. It says, they were not made perfect without us. And yet you come a little bit later on into chapter 12, and it says that the spirits of just men made perfect. 
So what happens in chapter 11 and chapter 12? To make those who are not yet made perfect, the spirits of just men made perfect. I tell you what took place, the cross. My old dad used to say this, they were saved on credit. They were saved in an, on, on the basis of an anticipated work. You and I are saved on the basis of an accomplished work. But they're all saved on the same basis. There'll be nobody in heaven but for the blood of Christ. Doesn't matter what dispensational, if you want to call them that, or what epoch, or what time, or what age, nobody will be in God's presence eternally on any other basis than the blood of Christ. Very clear about that. And even those who through all their lifetime through fear of death were subject to bondage, he's now gone in, he's now come out, and he's gone and he's made a show openly, he's gone right through Satan's domain, he's demonstrated the prince of this world is judged. Not will be judged, is judged. The sentence is still awaiting being carried out. It is already a defeated foe. Don't get taken in with all these modern films of, you know, some kind of to and fro battle and it's, you know, and eventually good triumph over evil. The Lord's just going to swish them away with a flick of his finger. The battle took place 2,000 years ago. It took place in Calvary and it was conclusive and the war was won. And he's gone in and he's conqueror. And he's come out the other side. And when I come to the closing verses of the chapter, he's now a comforter. He's a comforter. Remember he said to these disciples, he said, if I go, I'm going to send you another comforter just like me. He says it to them four times in the upper room. Four times he speaks of the Holy Spirit as being a comforter. The word only occurs once more in our New Testament. It's in 1 John. Since we sin, we have an advocate. We have a comforter with the Father. <laughs> we have one. I look at what we've got here. It's the same idea. He says, Wherefore in all things it behoved him to be made like unto his brethren, and they might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For in that he himself hath suffered being tested, He's able to succor them that are tested. He's been all the way to death and through it. When young Phil went through death earlier this week, his Saviour had been through it before him. And because his Saviour had conquered, he's through it on the other side and he's in heaven tonight. And one day soon, maybe today, his body will be raised and ours will be changed and we'll all be there. Life is brief. I want to just close with a couple of little thoughts that take you a little bit further into this book. In verse 9 we have these words. We see Jesus made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death. In verse 17 we have these words. It behoved him in all things to be made like unto his brethren. So while this incarnation's explanation is clear-cut, that's verse 9, it was to taste death for everyone. Verses 14 and 15, verses, sorry, 17 and 18 tell me about the extent of it. I just want to say very clearly today, when the Lord Jesus Christ became a man, he became a true man. I cannot understand how he came through Mary's virgin womb, and Mary herself undoubtedly is a sinner. She says, God my saviour, only sinners need a saviour. She's just like the rest of the human race. But, 
She is not some mere incubator to bring the Lord Jesus into this world in some kind of freak show. The remarkable expression, the seed of the woman, I believe is used to tell me that while there is a miraculous conception, it is a natural birth, and the Lord Jesus is a true man in every sense of the word. I cannot understand that. My feeble little mind is not up to it. Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in flesh. Of course I don't understand it. I used to, Mr. Wesley, I'll give him another plug. Another of his fantastic hymns. Fantastic. That thou my God shouldst die for me. I even noticed in one of the hymn books, they've actually changed it. Thou my Lord shouldst die for me. And I used to think that was a great thing to do. Mr. Wesley's not stupid, you know. Read the next verse. Tis mystery all, the immortal dies. Who can explain his strange desire? In vain the firstborn seraph cries. He says, beyond the angels. Grace is the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in flesh. And he walked this scene. When he sat at sight as well, he did it because he was weary and tired, having been walking all day. And when he asked for a drink, he did it because he was thirsty, just like you would have been alive. When he sent the disciples to buy food, it was because he was hungry. When he groaned within himself, it was because he felt the pressure and he felt the awfulness of what sin had done. And when he was moved with compassion, it's because he was a man such as you and such as me. And he experienced everything that we experience apart from sin. So whatever it is that you're called to go through, hopefully it will not be what our dear brother was called to go through earlier this week circumstances like that that even if it is the captain of our salvation is be, and now he's a comforter and now he's one who can represent us now he's one who can draw near to us that's the extent of it, I would have said much more about it, but you know there are eight of these, there's 13 times the Lord Jesus is named in this book, there's a 14th one but it's really Joshua Joshua and Jesus are the same name, Joshua is the Old Testament saviour so one of the references in the authorised version anyway is really Joshua but of the 13 others, 8 of them he's simply Jesus. In a book that's just told us he's the creator of saying it, he's holding it all, the word of his power. Jesus, 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 why? Well, I've told you the first one. Uh, the first one is to, to tell us about the uh, explanation of his manhood. And, and, and here's another one at the end of chapter 4. I'm just going to read them quickly as we close. Verse 14 of chapter 4. Seeing then we have a great high priest that has passed into the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. And then we've got this wonderful double negative. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feeling of our affirmity. He was in all points, not some or most, but in all points, blessed as we are. Like, it can't be more explicit. Behold him in all things, tested in all points. The double negative means a very strong positive. Somebody said that. You know, in, in uh, colloquial Scots, it's the only language in the world where a double positive can be a negative. And somebody said, ah, you're right. <laughs> we have a high priest, not we, who can, we have not a high priest who cannot. That is the extent of it. But I want you to see something else in these verses. I want you to just, I'm going to read three more of these, right? Well, look at it in verse 14. He's passed into the heavens. That's an entrance. He's passed into the heavens. That is in the past. They stood and they saw him go. I love where he went from. He led them out as far as Bethany. That's why I think it's a magnificent name to go. It's too late for you good brothers. 
over there at, at Riverside now, but I was brought up in a little place called Bethany Hall, and I, I just, what a, a lovely name for a place where God's people meet. You know, it was the place that was the nearest thing on earth to heaven. That's what companies of God's people ought to be, by the way. And he led them out as far as Bethany, and he went from the one place where he was loved straight back to glory. That's in the past. But look on a little further. Look at chapter 6 and look at verse 20 of chapter 6. You'll, you'll see another of these Jesuses. And, and you know, it's again, he sent it in verse 20. Whither the forerunner is for us entered. Even Jesus, oh, not only is he leading us through death, he's leading us into heaven. He's a forerunner. That just means he's the first one in. Elsewhere in the New Testament, he's the first fruit. That's in 1 Corinthians 15. That's the, that's the guarantee that we'll be there. He's the sheaf thief. He's showing what's coming. And there's a harvest to follow. He's the forerunner. That's looking to the future. But in the present, he's also entered in chapter 10 and verse 19. And that's the dividing point of the book we pointed out to you. Chapter 10. Having confidence, brother, to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus. Through a new and living way. That he has opened up through the veil, that is to say, his He's in there now. So he's in there now, and you and I can enter in. And in the future, in the past he entered in, he's still there now, and as a result of that, we can enter in. And in the future, he's a forerunner, and we're going to enter in. You see, not only the explanation of his manhood, and not only the extent of it, but here's the entrance of his manhood. He's gone into heaven. There's a man in heaven. He never ceased to be what he became. He never ceased to be what he was before God. He walked the scene, he was still, but now he's become a man. I, I love, you know, one of the accounts Paul gives of the conversion. He says, Who art thou, Lord? And no, the answer comes back, I'm Jesus of Nazareth. Imagine still calling himself Jesus of Nazareth from heaven. <laughs> he's still Jesus of Nazareth today. <laughs> he's still Jesus of Nazareth today. And he faces that, he faced everything that you and I face wronged and lonely and sad. He knew it all. Very quickly, Two more of them. And then the last two. The effect of what he's done. Chapter 7, verse 22. There's another of these. It says this. He's the surety. Verse 22, where am I? It says this. By so much was Jesus made a surety of a better testament or a better covenant. What he's really talking about now is the new covenant. Now it's late in the day to get into that. But let me tell you this. There's only one covenant replaced by the new covenant. And that is the Mosaic covenant. Clearly, what the Bible teaches. All the other covenants of Scripture that God made with men, they all still apply. So, the covenant of life that was made with Noah is unconditional. And the covenant of land that was made with Abraham is unconditional. And the covenant of leadership that was made with David is unconditional. And the covenant of love that is made in Jeremiah when he writes it on our hearts and what's referred to here is unconditional. But the covenant of law, which kind of came in and almost out of season. Look at Matthew 1, look at the genealogies, you'll see how God divides the ages rather than how we do it with our fanciful ideas at times in the three lots of generations. And he makes it very clear. It's Abraham and David, that's where he does the divisions. The law, that was an imposter. And now it's gone. 
And he's the surety of a better covenant. And in chapter 12, verse 24, it says, he's the mediator of that new covenant. In other words, he's maintaining it. He's the guarantee of it. He's the one who maintains it. We've now been brought into a relationship not like that. Lord, you see, that's why these Hebrews had to learn. That old thing is just about to pass away. It's done, it's finished, it's had it. It wasn't the real thing, it was just a shadow. You've got the real thing. You go home tonight, child of God, and you remind yourself of this. You've got Christ and you've got everything. In the midst of this pandemic and all the rest of it, you've got Christ. And then finally, I want to just say something about these two that I haven't mentioned. Chapter 12, verse 2. Looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is now sat down. Chapter 13. Wherefore Jesus suffered without the camp. Let us therefore go forth unto him, bearing his reproach. What's he saying? He's an example. This is the example of his mantle to you and I. What we should expect is endurance before exaltation. Looking unto Jesus. What did he do? He endured the cross, despising the shame, and he's now sat down. What do we expect in this world? Endurance. Because we're looking to the next one. And not only that, he faced exclusion before he got eternal acceptance. You and I have to be prepared for that. Maybe that's the kind of thing we're on the brink of now. Whether or not the powers that be have extended their authorities now is not for me to say from a public platform. But I tell you this, there's all sorts coming. And our present government here, the kind of things they're going to try and force onto our children in schools and all the rest of it. But we're going to have to go forth to him outside the camp. We're going to have to realise that this world's social system and this world's ecclesiastical system and this world's government system they're far, far, far from God and we're messed out of it. Going forth to him. That's the attraction. Burning his reproach. So he's a real man. And you remember that. The explanation. He came to die. He had to become a man to die. The extent of it. In all things. You think of the entrance of that manhood. Into the presence of God as a forerunner. As first fruits. We're going to follow. You think of the example of it left upon the pages of scripture for you and I to emulate him, to seek to be like him, to resemble him. Because as we said earlier, this is God's purpose for you and God's purpose to me as we go into 2022. That you might be conformed to the image of his son. We trust that God may bless his word. Thank you for listening.